All right. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Bill Faulkner, your host. Thanks so much for joining us on the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. And we have something a little bit special today. This is the first Rodfather episode. And, and so while we focus a lot on specific instructional topics and about how things are made and how to best use them, this one's kind of fun because I'm very, very fortunate to be joined by nothing short of a legend in the industry. I would argue the leading American fishing tackle and 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 rod manufacturing executive over the la- in North America over the last 50 years. And and that's Vic Cutter. And so for those of you, a lot of you know Vic and are shaking your head already and probably guessed based on the description exactly who I was talking about. But Vic has basically been at the center of everything meaningful uh, that's happened in the U.S. as it relates to rod building and the manufacturing of fishing rods for a long time. He worked at Bullard International. He is a former director of marketing at Fenwick. He's been a brand manager at Pure Fishing, which some of you will know sort of, you know, Berkeley and that. It's obviously a much bigger concern now, but Pure Fishing and obviously was, I think, president and CEO or chairman and CEO at at Pac Bay International for a long time. And from his tenure there, uh, so many things we know uh, as as sort of players in the industry today spun off and evolved from. So uh, I'm very happy to have kind of like the Hall of Fame legendary rod father, Vic Cutter. Vic, welcome. Thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you ha- for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So I have to tip my cap to Tom Kirkman. Uh, I got to meet you in person for the first time I think about 25 years ago at a show in Nashville, and then we reunited recently at the last inter- ICRBE, International Custom Rod Building Exposition in, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, this past February, which is an awesome show. If you're a rod builder, uh, you should go. You've heard me talk about that. It's a wonderful event. It's the Super Bowl of rod building, not just in North America, but globally. And uh, we got to talking and, and reconnecting, and it was great to see you at the show. And 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 to, you would think, if you weren't there, you would have thought that it was like a I don't know a retirement party for Vic, and he was the guest of honor or something. There's almost a reception line waiting to meet him and shake his hand the whole the whole time for both days. So you're very gracious with your time. Uh, but Tom's like, hey, you ought to get Vic on the podcast and you guys should. He's he's sort of been there, done that with everybody for a long time in the industry. And it's like that's a great idea. Do you think he'd do it? And uh, you were gracious enough to agree. So thanks so much. But again, no special treatment. I ask everybody who gets on the podcast, uh, how did you first get into fishing? Well, I, I started, my, my father started me at five years oh, wow. age, of age. And then uh, he was a rod builder. And uh, and that was in the 50s. Okay. He, started, he actually started building rods in the 40s. Oh, wow. Okay. I built my first rod with his instruction uh, when I was eight years old. Oh, wow. And I'm 73 now, so yes. that's 65 <laughs> years. I think you may be the, you, the earliest starter I've had on the podcast yet. You, you've got everybody beat, I think. And the original reason for building rods for my father was because the kinds of rods that he envisioned he wanted to fish with weren't available. Yeah. You know, after the, after the war, fiberglass blanks started coming around. Uh, in the late 40s and and so but it was difficult to get them to find them yeah uh and really until until herders and some of the florida companies started offering them as blanks right right um and um so he, he taught me that 
form follows function. And uh, the first rod that I built was actually a bamboo rod that had been a fly rod where the, uh, from a maker in New England. Mm -hmm. And the butt had been broken in a car door. Oh, gosh. And it was given to my father. <laughs> and so he just, he sawed the, the, the broken end off and taught me to build, and I built a, a, basically a spinning rod. Oh, wow. That ended up having an off-center ferrule. Right. Which sort of started my love uh, of off-center ferrules. Yeah, I was going to say, here's the origin out. of like the 70-30 ferrule, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and... Um, and of course, it had a, a very strange action being a fly rod. It right. was it was fairly light action. Yeah. I would call it a uh, between an ultralight and a medium light. Right. And, and uh, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Washington State I, or? No, I grew up in. Uh, I was born in Connecticut, and okay. I grew up in North Carolina. Okay. And then I lived for a while in Florida, and then Dallas, Texas, with Bullard. Right. And 30 years in Southern California, and then the move to, to Washington to work with Pac Bay. Yeah, so y you just covered that as a couple of moves, but there was a whole lot in there. So was Bullard your first, was that your first sort of official industry job was with Bullard? Uh, yes, uh, I, w I mean, I was a fishing guide along the way, Okay, but, but really Bullard was the first industry job. Okay, and were you a conventional or fly or what kind of guide were you? Uh, I was in everything. Okay. That came from both my father and, uh, and my father's best fishing buddy. My father was a, uh, primarily a fly fisherman. Okay. And he really loved to hunt more than he liked to fish. Okay. So we often did fishing expeditions that were really hunting expeditions. Yeah. Uh, that's where my love of flats fishing comes from from yeah. because it's more hunting than it is really fishing absolutely you know absolutely. you've got to find the fish before you can catch them right absolutely spot and stalk right yeah and that's still what drives me today yeah is the the fun of finding the fish the hunt. oh yeah absolutely uh, solving the solving the puzzle and figuring out where they are yeah. So, so you're guiding, and then how did you get from guiding to uh, to Bullard? Like, how, what was the connection well, there? Because I was building a lot of rods in ah. the late '60s and early '70s, and when Gene started Bullard International, well, it was originally Bullard Gene Bullard Custom Rods. Right. Okay. And uh, when he started that, I was buying blanks and. Uh, from a variety of companies I had bought from herders until they went south. And then I, I bought from, um, uh, this was really before Cabela's was just starting right. to sell. Components. Was Clemens around yet or is this predate Clemens? Uh, too? It was, it, he had just started up. Okay. And, and so I was buying from Midland Tackle in Slopesburg, New York. They, they had a really good selection of products and that's where i bought my first fenwick blank okay from midland and being in, in north carolina you know i grew up in greensboro so that was basically 10 miles from where tom grew up tom kirkman right. yeah yeah and uh and tom's a little younger than i am mm -hmm. so we didn't uh as as teenagers uh i was uh when tom was a teenager i was already 
uh, in Florida. And when I found out that the guiding life really wasn't what I wanted (laughs) to do, not because it's not a great uh, career, but I I just felt it wasn't going to suit me. Um, I loved it, but it it just, it wasn't going to be the kind of career that I wanted. Um, And so I went back to North Carolina and sort of fumbled around for about six months, you know, working for a newspaper. Okay. And decided that wasn't working. Right. And I was building rods, building a lot of rods at the time because there weren't many rod builders in the uh, early 70s in North Carolina where there weren't many that were building uh, commercially. Yeah, building for sale, right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the fortuitous things for me in in my whole development was my mother's next-door neighbor was a tackle rep. And um, he he had lines like Stren and and Zebco, Mm. and uh, and he was very he was part of a very successful group. Yeah, Um, and uh, so he sort of became my fishing tackle business coach. Okay, yeah, what a great coach. Yeah, yeah. My mother and father were both college professors. Okay, you know, in those days, college professors didn't know diddly about business. Right. And some would argue they don't know Disney about that. <laughs> hey, I'm neutral. I'm neutral. I'm not jumping in on that one. That probably depends I would argue, on the professor. I would argue that in my degrees in biology, okay, and I had one personal finance course when I was a freshman. That was the only business I had. Right. And I would argue that not enough attention is paid to a bit to business in most colleges, most liberal arts colleges. Yeah. Agreed. So, so the, uh, having access to, uh, a fishing tackle rep was solid gold. And as a teenager, I would work in his sample room, putting together samples of the products to send to dealers, um, and uh, and he paid me in fishing tackle. Oh, this is a good deal for everybody. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> Are you sure you hadn't? Right. <laughs> and uh, but that gave me a good uh, a good business background. You know, he taught sure. me about margin, and he taught me uh, about uh, quality control, yep. and you know, from a different perspective, not not from a quality of product when you're making a rod, but from uh, uh, quality of product and customer service sure. in the aftermarket. Absolutely. So you, you're an experienced, a very experienced rod builder by this point. Uh, you're getting this great exposure to a very successful tackle rep and you're looking for something to do. And so this is when you kind of said, maybe this, this industry is for me, or was it that conscious a decision or... I mean, I loved the fishing industry and I was, uh, you know, and I was making good money and uh, I was supplementing my tuition with building rods. Yeah. And, and buying, I got, so I was buying all my components from from Gene. Okay. Yeah. And was he doing the finish by that point, the diamond finish or was that later? No, he had, he had just started doing that. Okay. And in the early 70s, he was sort of in the experimentation phase. Okay. The Diamond One coat, the original, 
came about in, let's see, in 72. Okay. And that was because of another person that was a, uh, that was a salesman for Gene. Gene had always used Gutebrod rod varnish. Okay. Because uh, it was one of the few finishes available. And he hired a guy by the name of Tim Grennan, who's okay. no longer, Tim passed away about uh, seven years ago. And Tim's career was very similar to mine, except he was two years older. So okay. he was sort of, you know, preceding me. And I had met Tim. Tim uh, had been a fishing captain in, out of uh, South Pass, Louisiana. Oh, yep. Was younger and he was in he and he had been in the air force he'd been a jet fighter pilot okay and he probably would have stayed being a pilot except that he he was a pilot right after vietnam got going yeah and when the war wound down he basically got uh laid off yeah from the air force rift um, yep rift yeah yeah, yeah exactly Reduction in force. That's it. A nice name for yeah. being fired. <laughs> right. There's always a, a clever, when you know it's bad when there's always a clever euphemism for it, right? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't fired. I was riffed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure how it, it felt that way to him, but yeah. Tim had been a rod builder since he was a young man. Okay. And he, Tim was an excellent fisherman. Yeah. I mean, mo most most Cajuns from Louisiana know how to catch them fish. That hadn't changed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim carried that throughout his life, and uh, he was my he was the salesman at Bullard that handled my account. Okay. And Small so world. that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and um, in those days, you know, there was no internet, and and so you could either order from mail order companies by hand filling out an order and putting a check in with it. Right. And sending it in, or you could phone, you know, and that could be expensive, you know, cause you were even, it was land call. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. But I spent lots of time with Tim on the phone. Okay. And we shared a mutual love of fast action rods. Ah. And, all kinds of fishing. Tim was a fly fisherman. He was a spin fisherman. He was a casting guy. Yeah. Uh, so we had similar backgrounds. And so, uh, and in those days, Gene would answer the phone. Oh, that's, yeah. And he continued doing that for, you know, as long as he had the business. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, he was quite a character uh, and lots of fun to talk to. Yeah. I've heard, I, I didn't know him, but I've, I've heard stories and I have friends like Andy, Andy Deer, who said he was a card. Yeah. So by the early seventies, I was, uh, I looked forward to calling in my orders. Sure. Right. So in 1974, when I was sort of looking for a job, trying to find out what I was doing, some of the adults in my life would have said I was lost, but, uh, <laughs> what do they you know? know? You, you hear the same thing today about Gen Z and Gen X uh, and everything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I happened to call in an order, and Gene answered the phone, and he said, well, what are you doing besides building rods? And he knew I was building a lot of rods. Sure. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, just a bum, you know, a fishing <laughs> bum. 
<laughs> right. And, uh, and Gene said, well, there's going to be a, a plane ticket waiting at the airport for you. Come down to Dallas and let's talk. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He says, I'll, I'll set up a plane ticket at the, at the Greensboro airport. You just get on the flight. Well, it was, it was like two days before Thanksgiving. Oh, gosh. So on Thanksgiving morning, I find myself on a Delta flight from Greensboro to Atlanta and from Atlanta to Dallas. Oh, my gosh. You know, to tell you how airlines have changed, that Delta flight was, uh, from, from Atlanta to Dallas was an, was an L-1011. And it was me and seven flight attendants and two pilots. Because oh, on, on Thanksgiving morning, yeah, exactly. In the morning of, you know, <laughs> it was the weirdest thing, you know, and we yeah. basically partied all the way to, you know, and um, the guy that was Gene's second in command, Jose De Leon, picked me up at the airport and I had dinner with, uh, well, I had a late lunch with Jose and, and Gene and then we sat around and talked and after a couple hours, Gene said, I want you working here. Wow. And so I flew back the next day. I flew back to to uh, Greensboro and packed up my belongings and yep. moved to Dallas. Well, you obviously knew the catalog really well if you were ordering a bunch oh, of stuff yeah. from him. Yeah. So yeah. So that's a great story. So you start at Bullard. How long were you at Bullard? I was at Bullard for six years. Okay. And uh, in that time, basically, the reason Gene hired me was because Tim Grennan had been hired away the month before Gene hired me. He'd been hired away by Fenwick. Okay. And is that where you went next after? Well, yeah. Yeah, okay. because what <laughs> happened was Gene, at that point in the, in the late 70s, Gene Bullard International was the largest reseller of Fenwick blanks in the world. And so, and I was the best salesman at Bullard as right. far as Fenwick blanks. Right. So, the president of Fenwick called me in 1980 and said, uh, would you come out? We're going to have a symposium. Would you come out and join this group? So, and I, I said, yes. And he said, now there's one thing I've got to ask you. He said, I don't want you to tell Gene. Mm. And I said, why? And he said, well, we're having some uh, differences of opinion, Gene and I about how Fenwick is doing business. And if you tell Gene, he's going to be upset that he's not being invited. Okay. And they and uh, the president of Fenwick in those days, Dave Myers, felt that Gene would be a divisive influence in the meeting. I okay. think he was I think he was correct. So that put me in a sort of a bind because yeah, Gene sure. Gene was sort of like my second father. Right, and gave you your break, and yeah. yeah. So I basically took a week's vacation to do the symposium. To do the symposium, and flew out to California, and and um, and did the thing. And I got to meet a bunch of people, some of whom I'd actually met before, because I had uh, the rep that uh, I grew up next to had taken me to the AFMA show, the ICAST show. Oh, yeah. Wow. On occasions. And, and so I had met people, you know, through that. 
Um, it was the symposium. Were there other rod builders, or was this tackle oh, yeah, stores, or was it who who all was there? Uh, well, Hank Parker was there. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. Okay. Chico <laughs> Fernandez was there. Ooh. Lefty Cray was there. Man, that tells you everything you need to know about what a big deal Fenwick you know, was, huh? So there were there were about twenty people. Okay. And there were a couple of people that were in the industry. Uh, one of the Fenwick reps, who was my age, his father had been a Fenwick rep for. 20 years okay. and he was sort of coming into the agency and they wanted some fresh ideas from him. Okay. And there were a couple of dealers, uh, Jim Britt, who was Angler's, oh, yeah, Angler's workshop. workshop. Yeah. You know, he was there. Mm -hmm. So it was a wide range of people. Okay. Um, from, Sounds like a great group though. Yeah. And it was, it was really well done. And it, I, I think everybody that attended, came away a better person and a better fishing tackle, you know, person. That's high praise indeed. Yeah. And so um, about a week later, after I'd gotten back, I get a phone call from the president of Fenwick, and he said, we and want who, you to who was Who was the president at the time? Sorry, Dave, Dave Myers. Okay. Okay. Uh, and he went on later to be the president of Daiwa. Yep. And a president of Powell Rod Company. Mm -hmm. And in the end, before he retired a couple of years ago, he ran one of the leading saltwater tackle shops in Southern California, the okay. Jig Stop. Okay, awesome. Um, and uh, he also was an excellent fisherman. Yeah. So then I, you know, I was in the awkward position of telling Gene that I'd had a job offer. Yeah at Fenwick and uh, and of course having been a Fenwick fan since I was a young teenager yeah that's like a dream job I'd say, yeah yeah I mean it was it was not really a question in my mind whether I would take the job right. or not right um, yeah so I sat down with Gene and I uh, and I tried to do it early enough in the day that one one of the stories I'll tell about Gene, um, uh, and remember, this is the is the seventies, right? Gene had a refrigerator right across from his desk in a little alcove. Okay. And one of my first jobs, Bullard, was to go buy twenty four cases of Miller High Life a week in the in the company station wagon. Yeah. And stock the refrigerator. Oh gosh! So you had to get to yeah. him early before he was. Uh... Before yep, he was too far he, in, yeah. He could usually finish off a case of beer by 5 o'clock. Wow. And and anybody that came in got a free Miller High Life. <laughs> Whether they wanted uh, it or not, right? <laughs> Gene had been doing that so long that it, you, you wouldn't know yeah. uh, that he'd been drinking. Yeah. Uh, now, if we worked late and it got to be 7 or 8 o'clock, then you might know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I tried to do it early enough that that the alcohol hadn't taken any effect. Right, right. I didn't get early enough. Yeah, well, you and maybe you couldn't get early I enough on that. I said to yeah. Gene that I had had a job offer at Fenwick. He said, you went to California when you were on vacation, didn't you? And I said, yes. And so he said, well, you're fired betrayal okay yeah here we go yeah 
Well, and I said, "Oh, Gene, you know." And this was right before the the catalog had been printed and the catalog had been mailed. The orders hadn't quite started rolling in yet. Yeah, yeah, it hadn't hit it hadn't hit the fan yet. Right, and you didn't want to abandon him when it was going to hit the fan, but yeah. And, and, you know, there were only 10 employees at Bullard. Right. And he paid us very well. And we worked, you know, we worked really hard. And if, if there was an order left to be shipped and it was nine o'clock at night, we all shipped. Right. Yeah. You know? I hear you. Yeah. It was, it was a team effort. Sure. And I was really torn because I felt like I was abandoning the team yeah. in their hour of need. And I said, oh, Gene, don't, don't fire me yet. Fire me in two weeks after the push, you know, after the big right. rushes. Right. And he said, no, you get the, you get your stuff together. You get the hell out of here. Well, and so I said, okay. And then that night, all my coworkers called me and said, you know, gosh, this is going to be a real problem for us because, you know, we'll have thousands of orders. And, uh, and I was a key phone salesman. Right. So the next day I went back in and just like nothing had ever happened, like I had a job. Right. I, we usually would start at between seven and eight o'clock in the morning. Okay. And we'd stagger who was on the phones. Sure. You know? So I went in at seven o'clock, sat down at my desk and started answering the phone because all the East Coast business was coming sure. in. Right, right. And Dean would normally not come in until nine or 10. Okay. And so he came in at like 10 o'clock and walked right by me, right by my desk. And I was on the phone. So he, you know, he went to his desk, which was right in the middle of the shop. And I said, then when I got off the phone, he said, Cutter, what the hell are you doing in my store? And I said, Gene, I'm not going to abandon my coworkers. Yeah. So if you don't want to pay me, you know. Don't I, pay me, I, but I'm going to help give, you through the rush. I'm yeah. you two weeks notice, and I'm working for two weeks, and then I'm going to California. Right. That was maybe the busiest two weeks of my whole life. Wow. Well, I mean, you made a good decision. <laughs> you know, really took off. Yeah. Uh, just not through anything that I was doing. It just was just one of those cyclical things. Right. You know. And so I, uh, and I was actually engaged to be married. And my fiance said, well, you're not going to California without me. Yeah. So in that two weeks, I got married and oh, packed, up, packed up the apartment. Yeah. This is the busiest two weeks of your life. You didn't sleep yeah. for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and part of the reason that Gene was so bitter was that, that Fenwick had hired Tim Grennan away. And now they're hiring you, right? Yeah. And now they were hiring me. Right. And uh, with 10 people, you know, and my fishing experience. Yeah. So it's a big uh, loss. Yeah. You know, one, one thing that we should cover a little later is that part of my fishing experience came about because I was an avid reader of mm. all kinds of things fishing. Okay. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little later, but that prepared me for a lot of fishing types around the world. Yeah. You could say to me, um, I'm mooching for salmon. And, you know, I knew what it was all about. Right. Yeah. 
And Which, there weren't a, there weren't a lot of people in the industry that could do that. Well, I was gonna say, yeah, the, the internet has changed that. If you were interested in a topic, you can go find it and figure some of it out. But it used to not be that way. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's exactly yeah. so. That's fascinating. So, you know, so that's how I got to Fenwick, and then. And so, how long were you at Fenwick? I well, I was at Fenwick. But uh, Fenwick was a, when I was hired at Fenwick in 1980. It was a part of Woodstream Corporation. Okay. And Woodstream sold Fenwick in 1987 to a group of six investors, and then they got into difficulty very quickly into monetary problems, and they sold uh, Fenwick to Tom Bedell, who owned Berkeley. Yep. And uh, and Tom had formed a company called Outdoor Technologies Group. Or okay. And that was the group that then bought Abu Garcia and Johnson Mitchell. Kind of the launch pad for pure fishing, the big. Well, yeah, big, yeah. Yeah, diverse brand we know now, yeah. And was Fenwick at that time, was it all fiberglass still? Or when did when no, did it no. Fenwick, Fenwick, Jim Green uh, and Don Green oh, yeah. uh, had invented the graphite rod in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay. And okay. Inter- they perfected it and introduced it in '73. Okay. But interestingly enough, there were just two models of rods. There was an eight and a half foot six weight fly rod, and a five and a half foot graphite casting rod with a pistol grip handle. Interesting. Yeah. And the reason for that was there wasn't enough graphite material available on the market to build a full line of rods. Isn't that something? And then uh, by by 1974, they were able to expand it. Okay. And because Dave Myers had been a Bass Pro uh, and had fished the Bassmasters Classic in the early days, right? That's why Hank Parker had gotten invited to the symposium. Yeah, yeah. Now, coincidentally, I had met Hank when I was a, a late teenager because mm-hmm. Hank was fishing Lake Norman. Okay. Uh, in Charlotte. Right. And and I was you know, you know, 90 miles away. Right. And I was introduced through the fishing tackle rep. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Small so, world, you know, huh? Yeah. Small world, you know. I remember it may have been a little later than this, but when Fenwick came out with the Boron X rods and you're talking about that, uh, the pistol grip, I had one that was about six feet long with pistol grip and had the green in, uh, shock ring guides, kind of yeah. light pale. Gr- oh, the green, green Fujis. Yeah, they were Fujis. That's right, man. That rod, that was the, uh, that was the, my, my dad, my uncle gave one to my dad with an Abu Garcia reel on it. It was that first one that was not round. It was, it was not low profile yet but it was kind of semi-rounded with a slant at the front golly i'm ambassador xl maybe i can't remember yeah but, um, yeah yeah uh, man those those that rod was like you talk about the best rod you'd ever held in your hands at the time it was something that would have been uh 1981 82 or 83 yeah that's what i was thinking it was 82 ish yeah yeah yeah, and I was I was a ten year old kid, and man, that was like uh, that was like going from your your bicycle to a Formula One race car compared to what I'd been fishing with, and and my dad yeah. would always get mad because my brother and I would borrow, and he'd be like, "If you break that rod, I'm gonna break your neck," you know. <laughs> no, that's wild. Did you start as a sales rep at Fenwick, or you ended up being a marketing director? No, that was a weird thing. I was the what they called the consumer services manager. Okay. 
This sounds like the catch-all, uh, do everything job. everybody else doesn't want to do. <laughs> well, it was sort of that, but yeah. that was a plus as far as I was concerned. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I was like a pig in mud. Oh, you know, yeah. I was oh, yeah. yeah. So my primary job was to answer all the letters, all the questions that people wrote. And, you know, before the Internet... If you, if you wanted to, you know, you could talk to a manufacturer on the phone. But a stamp was and, cheaper. Yeah. But, but, you know, if you had a question, you, you, you'd write a letter. Yep. And because of my rod building experience, a lot of the questions were about Fenwick blanks. Sure. So I could certainly answer those because I'd been selling them for, you know, right, six, right. eight years at that point. And you knew and, all the things uh, because of being uh, a being a rod builder and then you're a, a, a re great reader about all kinds of fishing. So you could answer a host of those things probably. Well, and, and by that time I had fished in about 23 States. So, uh, you know, I could relate to a guy from Florida or Oklahoma or New Hampshire right. uh, or Ohio uh, or certainly Texas. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I also had been fly fishing in Montana for many years by that point. Yeah, way ahead because of my father's be uh, best fishing buddy was a uh, was a doctor who went to Montana every summer. Yeah, come rain or shine. Yep, yep. Like last year, I celebrated my fiftieth year of going to Yellowstone National Park. Oh, that's awesome! And fish. Yeah. So, you know, I had a lot of experience. And so I was able to answer these letters and uh, and I basically had an old dictaphone sitting on my desk and I pick a letter out and I would assign a number to it. And the number was basically the date it was received and the, and the order in which I had yeah. picked it up in basket. Right. And I would dictate an answer. Yeah. And so uh, the guy that had had the job before me didn't have quite as broad experience. He was a good fisherman and, and uh, knew a lot about Femic rods, but I was able to process the letters much quicker than he had been able to. Okay. And one of the things that really helped in my advancement at Fenwick, and this would be a tip that I would give anybody who was working in a very large company the, there was a secretarial pool. Right. And the only, the only uh, executive at Fenwick in those days that had a, had a full-time secretary assigned to them was the president. Sure. And then there were five secretaries in the secretarial pool. And so they would take my dictated notes and turn them into letters and send them out to the, you know, to the people. And because I was so knowledgeable and efficient i was processing two to three hundred letters a day and, and and making it very easy for the secretaries to do their job sure uh and nobody was yelling at anybody because there was a big backlog of letters unanswered yeah and it turned out that my predecessor had been throwing letters away that he had if he had any difficulty answering something he trashed it. Well, that's and, the only way to do it. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't tell me this until 
oh gosh, a year and a half after I'd been there because they didn't want me to get any ideas. Well, yeah, exactly. They were so delighted to have all the letters answered. Yeah, why would they put you on that path, right? Oh, man. And I said, you know, about 50% of these letters are the same questions day after day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do some form letter answers. Yeah, and we can simplify, simplify. Custom tailor them. Right, right. So that led... And this is, you know, in the in the early 80s, there weren't personal computers. I mean, Apple was making an Apple IIe, but nobody had that. Yeah, nobody could know. have seen the revolution coming. Yeah. Yet. Right, yeah, and so, but IBM had what was called, all of the secretaries had IBM Selectric typewriters, mm-hmm. which were the, that was the top of the line. They cost like 1500 bucks a piece, Ooh. you know, and that's in 1980. I was going to say, that's a lot of money. And so IBM came out with this thing. It was an IBM typewriter that had a magnetic card reader attached to it. And you could type a letter on the typewriter and record it to, the, to a magnetic card. Looked like a, looked like a long credit card. Right. And then when you needed that, and you just put a number on it. And when you needed that letter, you plugged that card in. And the typewriter would be like a player piano and just would type run it. Let- yeah. Oh, that's crazy. And then, you know, I would sign it. Well, pretty quick, we got a stamp. Yeah. My yeah. Signature. Right. And so, you know, I could process those letters in about a quarter of the time. Yeah. Right. So I ended up with a lot of, and the other thing, I, I was also the repair department manager. Okay. Now, I had a supervisor that worked for me, a wonderful woman who was very knowledgeable. She had, she had grown up working in the Fenwick Rod Factory as a rapper. Okay, okay. yeah. She knew everything about rods and rod right. building. Yeah. Uh, so she basically she handled that for me. I mean, I, I still had to do a budget, and I still had to uh, hire and fire, but, right. uh, but she handled the bulk of it. Right. And in those days, there were... There were 28 people in the repair department. Wow. That's a big operation. And because you could, you could break the butt on a Fenwick rod that had been made in 1960, and they'd build a new butt for it. Yeah, that's crazy. It would look just like it had when you bought it, except that's the tip a, would, would right. show the wear. Right. Yeah, that's remarkable. And that ultimately led uh, not to Fenwick's demise, but... It was a downfall for Fenwick, yeah, because of that lifetime warranty, right? And that's a whole nother subject that <laughs> in the history of of rods that you know, uh, I mean, it it could deserve a book written about it. Well, uh, you from you, a business maybe, you maybe should be the one to write the book. <laughs> well, no, I'm, uh, you know, I'd I'd rather be out fishing than write okay, books. All right, right, fair enough, fair enough. So, uh, so basically I had all, I got, so I had free time on my hands. Right. And I've got ADHD, so I couldn't sit, sit around. Right. You're going to find something to do. Yeah. So I started wandering around in the factory, meeting people and observing people Mm -hmm. and sometimes getting in people's way. (laughs) And, um, I did that for about a month before the president got a complaint. Okay. You know, why in the hell was Vic 
not doing something, but he's out talking to people and learning from people and right. making suggestions and right. basically be pain in people's Right. And um, so the president said, well, you don't have enough to do. And you're a perfect guy to take over quality control at Fenwick. And so I, all of a sudden, my business card read consumer services manager, quality control manager. <laughs> and I, being a little naive, I jumped at the chance. Right. Didn't get a, didn't get a raise. I was going to ask, <laughs> you know, but basically in those days, Fenwick ran two shifts. Okay. Yeah. So they started at seven o'clock in the morning and at three uh, thirty, that shift left and another shift came in and worked till nine o'clock. Yeah. About how many rods were y'all making at that time? Like per uh, week or per Fenwick year, was, per month? Or was making uh, about 300,000 rods a year. That's a lot. Uh, sort of on average sure you know everything's cyclical and and you'd get a, a recession year you know i had access to the femic sales numbers from day one mm -hmm. uh, because of my repair department sure right you know and um and of course none of that was in computer it was just in handwritten spreadsheets right one of the first things that I did as quality control manager was I tightened up the whole system mm -hmm. of uh, serial numbering because they'd been pretty lax. Uh, if they had serial number decals left over from 1969, they would use them up in 1970. Mm -hmm. So I stopped that. Right. You know, you had to know what year. Yep. was right you know we never had to do in the early days they didn't have to do recalls or uh or destroy any product because of uh a, a deficiency in the materials mm -hmm. because it was all fiberglass and yeah. fiberglass is a very forgiving material sure to yeah. build rods yeah now they were fast taper blanks sure and that's a little less forgiving than a you know, than a slow taper blank, but right. Uh, and some of the Fenwick processes making rods may be a little bit more difficult than others, but they resulted in a better fishing rod. Right. Yeah. You know, in those days, you had you know you had Fenwick rods, you had Browning Siloflex mm -hmm. rods, you had Philipson's rods, and really those were the leading fiberglass rods. Sure. Because everything else was just too soft. Yeah. And um, I remember Chico Fernandez talking about spinning rods and why he gravitated to Fenwick was because he couldn't find a fast action rod that had enough power in the butt to fight Big the fish tarpon. that he was catching yeah. in, in Florida. Yeah. Big tarpon, amberjack, um, even big snappers, you yeah. know, and groupers. Yeah. So the whole Fenwick method, I'd sort of grown up with it. Right. You know, and, and I gravitated towards those fast, those fast taper rods. Right. And, you know, the original Fenwick graphite rods were actually, if you, if you picked up uh, a, a graphite rod, the, the GFF 
856 that was built in 1973. It was the only model fly rod that they had. Mm-hmm. It was designed by Jim Green and compared it to an eight and a half foot six weight today, you would be shocked at how yeah, soft that graphite rod is. I bet. I bet. Uh, yeah. And it was designed that way. Because Jim Green was a tournament caster, and he knew that softer rods were more accurate, and accuracy was the game. Right. So it was a great fly rod, but as years went by, uh, people wanted faster action rods. Sure. That's one reason when Don Green left Fenwick, and three years later... Uh, he had he he basically when Fenwick was sold to Woodstream in 1979, Don was a part owner, so he took the cash from that deal, left Fenwick with a non-compete for three years, okay. and then in 1981, Sage Rods grew full grown out of the ground, right, um, and started shipping much faster action rods, right, because Don. Don did a better job of reading the market than Fenwick was doing at that yeah. time. Yeah. So to answer your original question, I was a little long-winded. No, that. that's okay. It's all um, relevant. So I spent basically eight years at Fenwick, and then Tom Bedell bought the company. Right. And at that point, I was actually, by, by 1988, when Tom bought the company, I had been left my position as quality control and customer service. And I had done a quick stint in the sales department. And then I became the uh, director of R&D okay. for FEM. And then I became the director of operations. Okay. And the reason I was promoted between director of R&D and director of operations was because I was given the job of moving all of the Femic rods overseas, all, well, all of the lower price right. Femic rods okay. overseas, first and, and to where, Taiwan. I was going to say, where did they go? And it was all Taiwan or Vietnam or where? Taiwan. And, um, and that began, I first, I actually first went to Taiwan in 1981 at the invitation of the company that became Pac Bay. Okay. Because Fenwick was involved. Fenwick provided the seed money for Pac Bay to be created. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That was, you know, Pac Bay didn't exist until 1983. Okay. In 1980, yeah, late, late, late 1980. The president of Fenwick sent Tim Grennan, who was then the director of R&D, mm-hmm. and me to an industrial machine show uh, in Chicago. And the reason okay. was, and you're going to, you, and you're, you're, you're actually going to play into this story. Oh, yeah? Because the company, the company that, that you now own was the reason for that. Really? We were buying Fuji Guides. And Fenwick had been using Fuji guides since the since the 70s. Right. And buying them from Angler's Resource in, you know, in Foley. Sure. And we never could get enough Fenwick guides. Mm. We were building 300 to 350,000 rods a year. And 
our supply was constrained. Yeah. And that's how I first met Donnie Paul. Oh, yeah. You know, I was calling him up and, and saying, Where's my guy? I mean, <laughs> he was working in the warehouse. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then Donnie was later on when Donnie became an independent rep. Donnie was a Fenwick rep. Yeah, yeah. So among others. All That's right. Well, yeah. so we were having a real problem with uh, getting Fuji products. And, and we started saltwater rods. And the problem was there was a company called Tackle Specialties in California. Mm-hmm. And they had a distribution agreement with Angler's Resource. Okay. Any guides or real seats sold in California had to go through their warehouse. Mm. Now, a few people who've been in the rod business a while might recognize that Tackle Specialties also was part of Sabre Rod Company. Mm-hmm. And they were a competitor of Fenwick. Yeah. They weren't going to go reasons- out of their way to make Fenwick a great deal on Fuji Guides. Well, and not only that, it it was worse than that because our line of Pacific Sticks was in direct competition to their Sabre saltwater rods. Right. And so they were purposely constraining the supply. Yep. Interesting. And so um, we met with Carl Haber. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, Carl said, I have a written agreement with Tackle Specialties. I can't do anything about it. And I said, well, okay. You know, so I had through, through my old rep friend, I made contact with a guy from Japan. And we started gray marketing Fuji products into the United States. Don't get any ideas. And this is, this is contraband and yeah, illegal and a terrible idea. Not- and I wouldn't recommend it because it's just a, it's a terrible thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but we we had no choice. You can't be put in a, a situation and, where you can't be competitive. Yeah, right. And we also knew that sooner or later, Fuji was going to figure out yeah. that, you know, these tens of thousands of real seats that were being ordered by a little tiny rod company in Japan were getting to Fenwick. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they'd shut it, they'd shut it down. Right. So that's how the whole Pack Bay, that's why Dave Myers sent Tim Grennan and I to Chicago to find a company that could make guides and real seats for us. Mm-hmm. And really, it wasn't a very good trip because we wandered around this show for three days and talked to people and really couldn't generate much interest. Yeah. Because tooling costs, a tool for a, a real seat, a graphite real seat, was going to cost $80,000, you know, and uh, and nobody was willing to share the cost with us. And so um, the last day of the show, we sat down to have lunch at one of those big round tables like you see at ICAST, you know, and there was a Chinese guy sitting right next to us mm-hmm. who spoke English, spoke English well, and uh, we got to talking about it, everything. And he was importing from Taiwan. He was importing the cast iron fleur-de-lis that go on top of wrought iron fences. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You see them all over New Orleans. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He was, uh, and he he was importing hundreds of thousands of them. Yeah. You know, 
And he was also importing die-cast parts and stainless, stainless steel parts for the Hobart company. They make all those food processors that yeah. restaurants use that they slice, that delis slice meat with. Them. Yes, okay. I was trying to place that name. I was like, I know this brand name, but yeah, it's from the restaurants. Uh, okay. And so they had all these intricate little parts, the metal stampings and everything. So we showed him a Fuji guide and he went to Taiwan, went back to Taiwan the next week. Uh, he lived in California. I uh, went back to Taiwan the next week and, and then he came back with samples of knockoff Fuji guides. Mm -hmm. The old BSHG, mm -hmm. you know, with the green rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the BPSG, the spinning single foot spinning rod right, guy, right. which were the two big guides that we used in those days. Sure. And so we in, we invested money with him to buy the tooling in Taiwan. Okay. To make the guide and to make real seats. And that's what eventually became Pack Bay. Well, the company in Taiwan was called South Star International. South Star, okay. And the company in the U.S., the Chinaman that we had dealt with, uh, was John Chen. And John had a company that was called J.C. Good Company. Okay. In other words, John Chen's Good Company. Right. <laughs> now, the Chinese, Chinese uh, like to name companies and corporations with what they call lucky names. Yeah, right. Yeah. Positive lucky names. Right, right. Like yeah. the predecessor to the Okuma company was Everwinner. <laughs> yeah. And you know the big the big international shipping company is Evergreen. Right. And that's not meaning to be evergreen like like a tree hugger. That's evergreen right. as in green cat. Evergreen and dinero. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we dealt with the John, with John Chen's, right. you know, J.C. Good Company. Right. And then in 1982, when I started being assigned to shift rods to the Orient, rod production. Right. Then some of my coworkers at Fenwick, who had long histories in the tackle business, uh, one of them was named Bill Ashby, and Bill... His father had been the president of Garcia Connellman. Okay. And had built Garcia rod, Garcia Connellman rods in Santa Ana, California for 20 years at that point. Wow. And yeah. so Bill literally grew up in the rod building. Now right. he was he was the manager of the stock room and the inventory control manager at Fenwick. Yeah. And we were the same age. And so we, we fished together every week, twice a week. Or more, Bill didn't like the fact that I was uh, I had been assigned to move the rods overseas, and we were the best friends, and that led to a lot of late night discussions, mm -hmm. you know. And Bill had also been involved in in the demise of the Conlon factory because they moved all their production overseas. Okay, so he knew all the problems we were headed to. Right, sure. He'd lived it. Yeah. Because, you know, in those days, your average American didn't hold Japan in very high esteem, and they sure didn't hold Taiwan or China in high esteem. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there were still a lot of veterans that had fought in World War II. Right. You know, 
and Vietnam veterans. Or in Korea or in Vietnam. Yeah, it's just culturally different time. Yeah, totally understandable. So Bill decided to leave Fenwick. He felt strongly enough about it. Wow. So um, he went to being in charge of, of parts and inventory. He knew the people at the J.C. Good Company. Yeah. So he moved over there and became a senior manager for J.C. Good Company. And over the next three, four years, he continued when when somebody was in danger of losing their job at Fenwick because uh, we were moving production overseas. Bill hired him. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So in ni- late 1982, I was riding a train from Taichung, Taiwan to Taipei, Taiwan with John Chen. And John was saying, could we, and at, at that point, they only sold guides and real seats to Fenwick. Yeah. Because we paid for all the tooling. Sure. So right. they said, John said, could we buy our way out of this agreement and sell everybody? And John was a very shrewd businessman and marketing person. Sure, so sure. I said, yeah, I think, I think we can arrange that. You know, by that point, we had a couple of hundred thousand dollars in tooling money invested. And so uh, basically, we worked out a deal where he, he, he paid us that money back. Right. And then uh, now on that train, he said, well, if we do that, I need an, the JC Good Company is not a good name for, and he knew I had some marketing experience. And sure. all. So he said, what could I name the company? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, I said, it's got to have water in the name. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and it can't be the best bass fishing company. Right. You can't yeah. name it that because well, it's going to sell. Your, what are your names? It's right? going to sell. Yeah. It's going to sell all kinds of different fishing rod components. Right. Don't don't pigeonhole it. Right. And I said, and by that point, I knew enough companies had been bought and sold. I knew that you never put your owner's name in the. If you were smart. Right. If right. you envisioned selling the company. Right. right. So the train was going around this big bay at the time. And I didn't know what it was called. And I said, John, what's this bay called? And he gave me a Chinese name. And I said, I said okay, translate that. And, and, and he said, what's called Sunset Bay. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, that's a good name for a company. I said, oh, no. Yeah, not Sunset. The bay part is okay. Not <laughs> Sunset. Right. That, that has a whole different meaning. Right. So I had to explain that to him and all. And then he said, well, what do I call it? And, and I said, John, use, you know, pick a name, a name for a bay, you know, somewhere. And he, he just didn't have the background, I guess, to do it. And then right. he said, well, what if I call it Pacific Bay? And I said, that sounds like a good name. You yeah, know, yeah. It's got water. It's, you know, right. you're located on the West Coast. Right. You know, stuff has to come across the Pacific. Right. Yeah. To be, you know, so, you know. So that's how it became Pacific Bay, and uh, it actually got written on a napkin, just like the you know you hear that story. Oh man, that's crazy! I've never heard that story. That's a cool story. So, so what would it be called if you guys had taken a plane instead of a train? We'll never know. No, yeah, <laughs> <You> no. <know? laughs> Air 
Jordan. <laughs> Something. I don't know. Yeah. So that's why I sort of went full circle after I left pure fishing. I went in a different direction. I got out of the fishing tackle industry. Okay. And I did that for five years. And then I missed the industry um, and the people. Right. Uh, and uh, and the product. Sure. You know, you get fishing rods in your veins. And, oh, uh, yeah. And so I, in 2005, I, I got a phone call from a large rod company. Um, who will remain nameless since I signed a non-disclosure. Right. And, uh, and they needed to find out uh, how to solve some of their blank making problems. Okay. And so I went and consulted with them. And then that led to going to another company and doing the same thing. So I did that for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, as one recommendation to any aspiring rod builder who wants to get in the industry, don't ever become a consultant. <laughs> it, you know, it is the most thankless job. Yeah. You'll end up being hated by everybody you consult with if you do your job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you're well paid, but you're, you're self-employed yeah. and you're collecting a per diem you know, right. payment and it ain't worth it. <laughs> I don't care if they're paying $2,000 a day. Yeah. The stress is if you're a conscientious, dedicated fishing person, the stress will kill you. I believe it. I believe it. So I, after a year and a half of that, I, I said, no, I'm not doing this. Right. At that point I was, 57. Okay. So I decided to take some time off and fish and get my head squared away a little bit. And just, um, just fish or did you bird hunt a little bit too? No, I, I hadn't, I, when I moved to California, I gave up hunting. Oh, did you? Okay. Because in my opinion, hunting in California is a rich man's sport. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, it takes an inordinate, if you're not rich, it takes an inordinate amount of time to scout yeah. where you're going to hunt. Okay. If you're going to be successful. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I said, you know. I'll fish instead. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I've hunted since then in Arizona, North Carolina, Texas, and Washington. Mm -hmm. But I, nowadays, I don't hunt much. After about three weeks of fishing uh, to get my head squared away again, because uh, when you're consulting, you do a lot of traveling and not yeah. as much fishing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm the kind of person that if I go a week without fishing, I get the shakes. Okay. <laughs> so about two or three weeks after I started fishing every day to get, you know, and I was living in Southern California, so I was, you know, saltwater and freshwater bass fishing. Okay. And... Um, I get a phone call from John Chen, you know, the founder oh, of JC Good. Company. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he said, would you have uh, lunch with me and Jack Lee? Now, Jack Lee was the owner of South Star. He was the owner of the factory in Taiwan that made all the real seats and stuff. Okay. Okay. And in 1997, they moved the factory from Taiwan to China. Okay. 
And, uh, and I had been in the Taiwan factory probably 40 or 50 times. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because my latter part of my pure fishing career from 1989 to 1997, I traveled to, to the Orient uh, no less than four times a year. Okay. A lot. Yeah. And sometimes 12 times a year. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. And so um, I had been in that, in the South Star Pack Bay factory many, many times mm -hmm. before they moved it to China. And then after they moved it to China. Okay. And because uh, they were still supplying Fenwick with, with products and yeah. pure fishing. Yeah. And pure fishing became their biggest customer. Sure. So Jack Lee had bought John Chen out of his interest in Pack Bay in 1997. Okay. And then they had moved the factory right after that. Okay. Um, and so uh, I sat down at lunch with him and, and also Jack Lee's son, Bob Lee, his youngest son, and many people in the industry would know Bob from his Pack Bay days. Sure. Because he, he ran Pack Bay before I did. Okay. Okay. And they wanted to hire me as the sales and marketing VP mm -hmm. uh, because Bob didn't have, Bob had some sales experience, but he didn't have much marketing experience. Okay. So they made, you know, made me an offer and I accepted. And the first from 2007 till 2011, I commuted from Southern California to swim you know, where the headquarters were. Right. Yeah. And I, I would come up here and stay for two weeks and then I would go, get on the road for a week. And then I would spend a week in Southern California in a home office mm -hmm. working remotely. Right. And I'll tell anybody who's interested in having a career in fishing tackle, don't even consider working remotely <laughs> because you will not get ahead doing that. Yeah. Because in my opinion, supervisors and managers of young people won't see their, their innate talents and won't be able to mentor them to grow within a company. And Fair while enough. some people, some people can get ahead by jumping from company to company, uh, I don't think that's the real way to have a career. Because in, in, you really don't have any loyalty to anybody but yourself. Yeah. And even in this day and age, I don't think that works long term. Yeah. Wow. So basically, I, I then um, went to work for, for Pac Bay and, uh, and worked for, uh, for Bob Lee. He was, he was president mm -hmm. until the Lee family sold the company to a, a Chinese guy by the name of uh, Tony Huang, who was one of their, he was one of Jack Lee's nephews. Okay. And he had been running the factory. Okay. And so then I worked for, that's when I moved up here to Squim and, okay. um, and started running the place full time. Okay. Worked and, for him until I retired in 2017. Okay. So, so how long were you there total? You were there, you were at the Pack Bay or that? For 10 years. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and so one of the things that's kind of interesting, and I just, and again, I, tell me where the boundaries are and we can talk or not talk about anything you want. 
But if we think about, if I just rattle off some of the names of significant enterprises in in today's fishing tackle world, right? Like a lot of them worked at Pac Bay while you were there in your or tenure. Fen- yeah. Or Fenway. Or, or both, right? So like I, I'm just Batson. The Batsons worked at Pac Bay, right? Uh, yep. uh, Bob, may he rest in peace, and Bill. We think about America. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll add something that I actually got Bob Batson his job at Pac Bay. Oh, wow. I, I, I didn't know that, but I knew you are there at the same time. In the early 90s, Bob was working for the Sabre Rod Company. Okay. And he could see that financially Sabre was having problems. Mm-hmm. And so he called me up. He didn't know that we were in discussions with the owner of Sabre, we being pure fishing, right? to buy Sabre. Yeah. He didn't know that. Okay. He called me up and said, look, I think Sabre's going to go under. Can you suggest somebody I can work for? And I right. said, well, let me think about that, and I, I'll come up yeah. with some people. Right. Because Bob had been a customer of mine at Bullard. At Bullard, okay. Bob was in Hawaii building yeah. rods. Right. He bought his blanks from Bullard. There you go. And so and he, Bob he, was a, he was a prolific rod builder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now he, well, he's passed, but his son, Bill, uh, runs Batson Enterprises, right? Which is That's still right. a major player. If we look at American Tackle, uh, Darren Heim, who uh, is running that, worked at Pac Bay, right? Uh, there's people who are at Mudhole, who are at, obviously, we talked about some of the common history and in, in, in bouncing back and forth with, with Angler's Resource. And so it's it's just such an interesting, so many of the, who I'm, I'm, I'm undoubtedly leaving people out, but uh, this is kind of one of those things where this. The list is just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. how small a world the tackle industry is. Right. Yeah. And how many good old boys there are in the tackle yeah. industry. And I, yeah. mean, and I mean that in the best. In a good you know, way. Right. Yeah. 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 Old friends. Yeah. And colleagues. Yeah. yeah. It's so it's so funny. I mean, it's kind of a lesson and you never burn a bridge. Right. Because uh, there's a you never know when these paths are going to cross. It's so interesting how many times your personal path has crossed with so many folks. And then, of course, you could do the same thing with all the spinoffs from Fenwick, right, which are yeah. myriad and significant. Right. You mentioned Sage, but there's there's a host of them that people probably don't know. You realize this is and and to me spinoff or or sort of offspring of a parent company is no kind of bad word or, or bad uh, no, notion, notion no. to me. But if you looked at the family that tree was... that came off of Fenwick and that came off of, uh, you know, Pac Bay, it's a significant portion of what we consider to be the industry, at least, and not just in North America, but more globally than that, but certainly in North America, you know, today. And the people that had an affiliation with Bullard and, and went on to do things like it's just, it's fascinating. Well, like like Woodland, Washington. Yep. Now, listeners would know that Woodland is the home of Lamaglass, and G. Loomis, right? Thrasher rods, right? Edge rods, right? You know, it's Gary Loomis's hometown. Yeah, it, they're all right uh, there. They're they're in a spot like when we go out there to visit our customers. Like we can stay in a place and we can walk to half our meetings. I mean, it's crazy. It's like who would have thought the epicenter would have been. Uh, you know, Woodland, but if you know the history, it's like, well, this makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. yeah. And so many of those people, like Steve Rajeff, who was yep. the 
you know, raw designer at G Loomis. Yeah. And still oh. consults there, uh, still is on kind of a, a I think a more part-time basis, but he still is yeah. a design consultant. When he there. was a teenager. Jim Green was his mentor at the Golden Gate Casting Club. Unbelievable. And he was actually, when he was still a teenager, he was on the Fenwick Pro staff. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, uh, and of course, Tim, his brother, his went brother, on to yep. Echo Rods. Right. And he was also mentored by Jim. Yeah. And, and then um, you got all the stuff Don Green did in addition to what Jim Green did, right? Like yeah. it, it's, 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 it's an interesting, uh, it's such a, it's a small world, right? Like there's, it's uh it's a very small kind of linear family tree of so many of these things. And, you know, it connected to you. I don't know if you had much experience with Al Jackson. Yeah. But, you know, Al, Al started with Lou Childer. Yeah. At- right. Sons. Right. Back with Carl and Donnie and a bunch of those guys. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm sorry for those of you who don't know, this is so familiar to, to Mr. Cutter and I. So Carl Haber was former owner of Angler's Resource, who I acquired this from. Uh, and Al Jackson is a blank designer and uh, unfortunately just recently passed. <laughs> Uh, yes. But was was had done design work with the point blanks that uh, Fuji imports and um, was his most recently was working in conjunction uh, with the, the guys at North Fork Composites edge rods with Brad Loomis and with Alex Maslov and, and Kim and those guys. Yeah. And, until very recently. Yeah. So uh, the, the same names keep popping up. Right. Like it's it, it really is kind of a small world. You know, and my love of fast action rods in part was was caused by Fenwick rods, but it sure. was also partly caused by J. Kennedy Fisher blanks, mm-hmm. which I bought originally from J. Lee Cuddy in Florida when yeah. I was a teenager. Right. And they were fast action, uh, fast taper rods. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, Al Jackson and, uh, and Joe Fisher and mm-hmm. a lot of people you know, collaborated on rod designs. Absolutely. Dick Posey from Lama Glass. Oh yeah, Lama Glass. Yep. A lot of people don't know Dick Posey actually worked for Fenwick when he was a young man, and Fenwick was based in Woodland, Washington. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then and, uh, when I was much younger, and I would, I was working for a company in Portland, Oregon, and I would cut out a day when we'd have meetings in Portland, and I would go north to Woodland and go, and and I used to go see Jim Britt in Angler's Workshop and walk around and actually pick out some stuff. And he was always, we'd always go to lunch. He was so good to me. And then he'd take me cro- literally across the parking lot to Lamaglass and knock on Dick's door and be like, hey, give this kid a tour. And that's where I learned I'd never seen a rod blank manufactured before or made before I went there the first time. And I'd never seen him squeegee a paint job on a blank or, you know, what the ovens they baked them in looked like. I'd never seen anybody remove the mandrels after the bake or put on or remove the cellophane. You know, it's, yeah, it's a small, small world, man. Well, Al Jackson did a lot of designs yeah, for yeah. for them, and okay. and he also did. Des- he worked at G Loomis for a while. Yeah, he was there. Prior- he was at Loomis. He was at. God, he's been. He was at a lot of places. Well, I, yeah. I always said that Al worked at every single fishing rod company in the world except Fenwick. Yeah. Now, the reason I had to say that was because Al worked at Pure Fishing before it was Pure Fishing. Oh, okay. He worked for Berkeley in the okay. early 80s and he invented the lightning rod i was just gonna say the lightning rod one of my favorite rods at the time my brother and i have killed more fish than old age on a couple of old lightning rods that we got yeah back in the day that was that was what that was the 80s uh mid to late 80s huh 
Yeah, and one of the things that Al and I, Al became a really good friend. I met him back when he was at uh, Lou's. Okay. What Lou Chiller. And, but, and was uh, he designing blanks for Lou's? Is that what he was doing? There? No, uh, not, not that point. No. Okay. He was he was more involved in in real in real acquisition and okay. and their attempts to influence what Fuji was designing. Sure. Now, Al and I shared a common design philosophy, and that is lighter, faster, stronger. Yeah, yeah. And Al took it to extremes. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, and one of the reasons that he had a falling out at Pure Fishing was because the original lightning rods were lighter and they were a whole lot faster, but they weren't stronger. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's a, that's a uh, bad combination, right? Yeah. You know, they were selling, well, uh, I think in 1983, 84, they sold 500,000 lightning rods. Yeah. And they only sold half of those to me and my brother. So yeah, somebody, somebody yeah. else is buying. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but Hank Parker was one of their sponsored pros. Like, I feel like Hank Parker was fishing lightning rods. That's a sad chapter in my history. Uh-oh. I didn't uh, mean to pick I a scab. I managed the pro staff at, uh -oh. at Fenwick and the, also the Fenwick fly fishing schools mm -hmm. and bass school. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Hank was a pro. He was the pro, mm -hmm. you know, in those days when we, when we had a, a store promotion, Hank would go to it and the line would be yeah. like around the know, block. Right. Yeah. The building yeah. To meet Hank. And, and Hank, Hank is not only a fantastic fisherman, of all types. I mean, he's not just a good bass fisherman. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's a fantastic tackle technician. Yeah. He's the kind of pro that a rod designer wants to work with. Right. He, he can tell you what's wrong with your design and what he'd like to see, yeah. and he makes your job easy. Yeah, yeah. Man. Hey. So Hank was working for Fenwick, and I was doing the rod designs. Based on now, I wasn't doing blank designs mm -hmm. uh, because I was just learning that from Jim Green. But right. so Jim was doing the blank designs and Tim Grennan was doing the saltwater blank designs. Mm -hmm. All Jim wanted to do was fly rods at that point. Right. So Tim did everything else and we okay. all collaborated. And right. I did all the specking of components and mm -hmm. the handle lengths and designs right. and color combinations and the whole works. Sure, sure. And um uh, all the marketing about gobbledygook as well. Right. And so Hank called me up in like 1983 and he said, I, I'm going to start a TV program yep. and I want Fenwick to be a sponsor. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's it going to cost? And Hank said, uh, 250000 a year. Now, I'll be completely honest with you Fenwick was losing money hand over fist okay because of warranty costs Fenwick yeah, I was, was just gonna say that lifetime warranty right gross sales were 11 to 12 million dollars and we were spending a million dollars on warranty mm. so we were making no profit yeah and it was really the road to ruin and I knew there was no way that we could pay Hank 
$250,000. And and to give people a sense, if we take $250,000 from 1983 or 84 and inflation adjusted, it's about $735,000. It's a big number. <laughs> it, never mind whether you're making or losing money. This is not a, a, a drop in the bucket, right? This is a chunk. And it's a per year number. Right, right. Yeah. Now, to give you an idea, a full page color ad in Sports Afield in uh in that time period was eighty thousand dollars for an insertion wow. so when you if you pick up a copy of sports field magazine you'll see car ads and uh maybe oh, some lifestyle clothing ads right but you won't see all that many fishing tackle ads because right. it's too expensive it's expensive yeah yeah and of course, the car companies have money to throw around like nobody's business. Well, right. They're going to spend it on something somewhere. So, yeah, exactly. Someone wants to yeah. go fishing. So they spend it with Sports Afield and get taken on a hunting or fishing trip. <laughs> so I thought that that's I a bad Hank, plan. Yeah. I, I said, Hank, I, I don't think we can cut that nut. I'll yeah. check with the, uh, you know, with the executive group and see. And and they said, oh, hell no, we can't do that. And I right. said, well, you yeah. know, Hank's, Hank's Hank's got to be a pro with the company that's supporting his program. Right. So we're not just choosing a program. We're, we're going to maybe lose this guy if somebody if somebody does write the check. Yeah. yeah. But when we didn't have a choice. So I called Hank up and I said, Hank, you know, we, we can't do this. And, you know, we're releasing you from your contract. Right. Because we know that's what we have to do to, right. you know, and all. So he went right to Berkeley. Yeah, because they were they were growing it, you know, and at that point, uh, it, well, in 1979, when Tom Bedell took over Berkeley, they were doing about 30 million. And by the time Tom sold the company in 2000, 2005, they were doing about 500 million. Wow. That's a good growth curve. Yeah. <laughs> And now I don't I don't have any idea how much they're doing. Well, I don't either. I don't either. But I, I suspect it hasn't uh, gone down. <laughs> they've got so many brands that yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know. Yeah, you look at the R brands page at Pure Fishing and it's just like oh it, it's literally it's so many brands, it's shocking. You know, so you, and, you you have an interesting perspective because you've seen all of this, right? And and have a lot of of great memory for so many things you've seen over your time. Like what, what's your thought about where the industry's going or, or what the industry needs or where we ought to be focused as you, you know, I think I, I had sort of a negative view in 2017 when I retired because we'd seen since really since the late eighties, we'd seen such a drop in the number of fishing participants. Right. Yeah. When I joined Bullard, there were 60 million fishermen that had bought licenses. Yeah. Now, that means there were more fishermen because right. a lot of places don't have to have a license. <laughs> and by the 90s, that was down to 40 million. Yeah. And by 1995, we were down in the low 30 millions. Right. And uh, it was looking pretty bleak. Right. And I'll have to say, one of the positive things about COVID yeah. was it sort of helped resurrect the fishing business. Absolutely, it did. 
I mean, I think they're, you know, when I went, when I went to this ICAST, you know, the last one in July, mm -hmm. I had not been to an ICAST in, uh, since 2017 when yeah. I retired. Right. And this one was the largest one that I had been to since the old days in the 90s in Las Vegas. There were more rod companies. Yep. There were more component companies. Yep. There were more lifestyle companies. Yep. It was really encouraging to see. Yep. And you know, I, because I worked so many years for Pure Fishing and those people that were my coworkers have branched out into other parts of the industries. Yeah. You know, I have a friend that uh, is a, a vice president at Victoria Knox, the knife company. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Swiss Army knives, uh, yeah. I have friends at other fishing, in you know, companies, mm -hmm. and um, you know, life's always a struggle, but it's not like it was in the '90s in the fishing yeah. tackle. It's yeah. it's actually pretty pretty encouraging. Yeah, no, I I agree, and it, and um, uh, you know, I'll take uh, for, I don't care the reason why. I'm glad it's going in the right direction, and I hate that it took a global pandemic to get people outside again and, and sort of focused on those things, but I, I, I'm glad for any reason. So you now, I, I want to, I'm going to make you talk about you a little bit. So um, we, we were chatting before we started recording the podcast about, uh, we had a discussion about how much we both liked tie flies and sight fish and catch fish on top. And, and, and so I know for sure you are cutting a lot of foam and tying a lot of flies and doing a lot of that. Is that your, is that kind of what you spend your time doing in terms of fishing these days is, is mostly fly fishing? I still build rods. Oh, do you? Okay. And about 15 years ago, I got interested in 3d printing. Okay. And so I, uh, I design and print grips. Well, I won't call them real seats because okay. They aren't traditional real seats. They're okay. methods of reels to rods. Interesting. And um, up until this point, I have not come up with one that I would say I would want anybody marketing. Okay. Because they part of partly the technology of three D printing isn't yet to a point where you could affordably print metal. Right. I mean, a big company can print metal. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, and the plastics, the ABS and the different plastics, PLA and stuff that I use right. on a daily basis aren't uh, strong enough to make real seat hoods for a wide range of fishing. Yeah. yeah. They'll make a fly, they'll make a fly reel seat hood. No yeah. problem. Yeah. Um, but not a, uh, Penn International, right? Yeah, yeah. right. And, and yeah. you're a you're a woodworker too, right? Or, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you still doing a lot of woodworking? Or yeah, uh, my my most recent uh, project is I decided that there were too many places that you could drive to in Washington State, okay, and get off the beaten path and catch fish that I hadn't been to. Ooh. And so I bought a uh, Nissan, a six, 2017 Nissan NV uh, 3500 high top van. Yeah, talk to I'm me. Turning in, I'm turning it into a Sprinter van. Yeah. Okay. So this is my wife will not let me have one. This is my dream project. I want to. I want to build out the ultimate bird hunting and fly fishing Sprinter van and just go around yep. and follow the, follow the weather, follow the hatches, follow the fish, follow the birds and seasons. Yeah. 
Well, that's awesome. So well, how many of the places have you checked off the list yet? Oh, I haven't because I hadn't finished the van. I just oh, bought okay. It. Okay. Just bought it a month ago. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you're forgiven then. And yeah. So, uh, so it's got the floor and it's starting to get the walls. I'm using yeah. 8020 aluminum. Oh to wow! Build all the cabinets and everything. Okay. So, and uh, and I'm not in a rush to finish it because uh, I always fish the month of October in Montana, and so I'm sort of winding my van project down and getting ready to tow the boat to Montana. There we go. Sounds like a plan, man. That's awesome. And in between, trying to fish three days a week. Matter boy. Yeah. So, which has been difficult this year because. The weather's dry, been so huh? crazy here. Yeah, we've had unusually, uh, unusually windy winter and summer. Yeah, and being a fly fisherman, you know, when the wind's blowing twelve miles an hour, it ain't fun. Yeah, unless there's a whole lot of grasshoppers getting put on the water, it's not much fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, uh, and you know, basically, you said I was a woodworker, and mm-hmm. you know, and I do the three D plastics, and I right and. I, and I originally I cut the foam for the flies. I cut it on a cricket maker machine. Well, that's not what you're cutting on now. You got a laser cutter now, right? Yeah. But now I use the laser because it, it it cuts finer detail. Yeah, I got it. Also I gotta... cuts, it also cuts some materials that I couldn't cut on the cricket. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'll tell you firsthand that uh, if anybody is interested in this topic, Vic, uh, he mentioned that he he thinks he might be a little ADHD and he doesn't do anything part way or to the, the quality control role in him is still there. Uh, he sent me some of these things after we talked about them at, at ICRVE and they're spectacular. And it is taking me down a whole new path of of not just floating flies, but suspending flies. Right. It's there's a fascinating uh, body of work around all these all these, the, the shapes are unbelievable. I had no idea you could cut those things at home with the laser, but uh, yeah. And especially some of the ones that have the reflective foil or mylar or whatever it is on them. I mean, you talk about some good looking materials and some good looking flies and, and relatively quick and and relatively easy and, and durable, you know, uh, compared to many other methods of construction to, to get a similar effect. I'm, I'm a fan. Well, you know, I, uh, I've been a maker all my life. Yeah. And I'm a terrible artist. I can't draw where the sh- <laughs> and if you saw, my, if you saw my signature, you'd recognize that that's you know <laughs> that's a you're telling the truth. Problem. And yeah. so I had to teach myself how to use a CAD program to draw these shapes. Yeah. And I also, of course, I built a, a CNC machine, a CNC router. Okay. With my interest in woodworking. Yeah. To do some stuff. Okay. And that helped me want to use it to a why to fishing tackle yep why not why wouldn't you right yeah i can't wait to see what you do next so you know and i and uh, you know through the years i think i've met more rod builders that actually were makers yeah woodworking is a is a shared hobby of many of us rod builders absolutely as and, is fly tying yep yeah and uh and lure making I think many of the early Boyd Pfeiffer, Gene Bullard, were makers yeah. before they were rod builders. Yep. Uh, and all of the great rod blank designers, Al Jackson, Jim Green, Don Green, like Al Jackson w- was a degreed electrical engineer. Yep. 
and uh, and loved to fish. Uh, his early tinkering was with electric guitars. No, he I didn't number, know that. He held, held a number of, number of patents. I did not know that. Uh, when Al passed away, I was working on a project with him to 3D print a unique guitar pickup, which Al huh. hoped to market to the big the biggies. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't realize he was a guitar player or a guitar builder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely a personality type, the maker, the maker type, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I would encourage anybody that that wants to get into the tackle business to understand their own talents as a maker or a wannabe maker. Right. Because certainly that's how that's what led to my success. Yeah. That and I, the tackle rep that taught me the business had been in the Navy. And mm -hmm. one of the things he always told me was in the service, you learn to not volunteer for anything. <laughs> he said, that's not a good idea because if you're in combat and you volunteer, you might not come back. Right. Yeah. And he said, but when you're in the business world, you can really endear yourself to your boss by volunteering yeah by volunteering and yeah. becoming invaluable and uh as long as your boss is a good humanist yeah um i mean i've worked for bosses along the line that you were so invaluable to they wouldn't promote right you know and they and if anybody looked like they were going to poach you they torpedoed your right your uh, right yeah your right yeah that's not good that's not good in the long run yeah yeah but i think the way to get ahead is to is to do your job and then volunteer to do somebody else's job well there you go or help somebody yeah you just have to redesign the letter response process to make it 75 percent more efficient so you have the capacity to volunteer <laughs> yep. easier easier said than done right yeah Oh man. Well, Vic, this has been such a pleasure. I feel like I thank you for indulging me for so long. Uh, we, we, this is part one. We may have to do a part two because there's still so much we could talk about, but um, man, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on and education as always. And I uh, really, really uh, look forward to hopefully seeing you at ICRBE and also at, at ICAST coming up next year. You, you, you planning to go? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely, I'll definitely be at ICRBE. All right, you you bring in the sprinter van. I want to see these. I want to see this thing built well, out. Well, I I I might do that. All right, um, well, let me know. I I, know, I will. I, I want to I, sign I, up for the I've, tour. I've fished in all fifty states and eleven foreign countries, but I'm about the last uh, big fishing tour I did was in two thousand, where I went spent fourteen thousand miles of fishing around the country. That's awesome. Um, and uh, so I I'm sort of planning another one of those, but it probably won't be this next year all right well hey you make sure alabama is one of the 50 states you come see me and we'll take you fishing for sure down here in alabama it would be our great pleasure and you know you talked about part two i would like to be able to talk with you about the the history not the history but the effects of the fuji company on the tackle business oh man i'd love to hear it you could educate me i don't I can almost assure you that's that's a lesson I need and am missing. So I'd I'd love to I'd love to hear it. I'd love to share it with the rod building community. What I said earlier about the constrainment of Fenwick's 
guide supply. Yeah. It sounds like a negative thing, but it's really just the business world. Sure. Yeah. You know, all the personalities that were involved at the time. Yeah. That's yeah. how that's how the cards were dealt. Yeah. 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 It might be different today and it might not be, you know, yeah. but uh, but that's not to negate the the wonderful contribution that Fuji made to making all fishing rods lighter, faster, stronger. Yeah, absolutely. And they're still hard at it. Uh, yeah. They're still, still innovating, still trying to stay in front. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And, and uh, you know, you talked about wanting to work with people that were good humans and all that. And uh, that's the one thing in my first year in this role that's really impressed me is they are honorable, ethical, moral people who care very deeply about the environment and about our water and about uh, the sport. And uh, it's a good thing. I, I, I don't take it lightly to the, the privilege to wear their, their logo on my chest. So yeah, we should do and that. They, That'd be fun. We'll do that for part two, man. And they have the ingrained Japanese mentality of quality. Oh, it's, it's so hardwired to go. Uh, you should, if they let you, I'd love to take you over there. the The R and D center in Shizuoka is. I I've been there. Okay, I, it I, is remarkable. I, yeah, I can tell you some funny stories about my trips there. Oh, I bet they blindfold you and put earmuffs. Well, on you. they 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 would never let me in the factory proper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they and, uh, uh, they about took my phone away from me, and I'd always ask, "May I take a picture?" And you know, the, for mo so many things, it was like, "Sure, sure." And as soon as we got anywhere near the R and D center, it's like, "No pictures." It's like, "Okay, we'll hold your phone." It's like, "Okay, look, I, I'm not looking to do any harm, but yeah, I guess I guess when everybody's after your secret sauce, you get pretty protective in, in short order." Yeah. Oh, I can't blame them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a great pleasure. Uh, you honor all of us to have us on and share some of your knowledge and tell your story. And uh, we appreciate you you being the very first, you know, Rod Father. And we'll look forward to the to the next podcast. So thanks so much for your time. Good luck with your van, and uh, hopefully we'll chat soon. And if you come up with any neat designs for fly phone, draw a picture a rough one and send it my way i will and i actually have a couple that i'd like you to look at they're going to be very easy for you but uh they're, they're stuff that i've been sort of trying to stamp or punch out uh yeah and, and you probably already do and it's probably not even original but yeah we'll talk good to talk to you all right thanks so much for your time vic have a great day okay bye-bye bye-bye